And welcome everybody on this bright, I was going to say sunny, but it isn't, Friday morning. <laughs> I'm sure there are sunny days here, uh, lots of sunny days. I understand that uh, usually your camp meeting is very, very hot. Um, I'm thankful that it's cool this time, aren't you? Um, all right. Before we begin, I want to, most of you were here yesterday, but there may be some people who weren't. I want to show you this book here, which you can get at the Adventist Book Center, titled The Long Road to Armageddon, and my talks this week have been based on this book. Now, obviously, the book has a lot more than I've been able to say this week, but uh, <clears throat> it's based on this book. So, if you'd like to get a copy, I'm sure the ABC will be happy to accommodate you. Then, another book that I wrote called Forever His. How to have a joyful and unbroken relationship with Jesus. Practical advice from the book of Romans. This deals with the first eight chapters of Romans where Paul lays out very clearly the plan of salvation. It, Paul's understanding of the plan of salvation is nowhere more clearly explained than in Romans. And what I've said about the plan of salvation this week is based on Paul and what I've said in this book. So if you'd like to know more about God's plan of salvation, um, at least as I've explained it, get this book, Forever His. Then the case for the investigative judgment. Um, that's a very controversial doctrine in the Adventist church, but as I said yesterday, I am absolutely convinced that it's correct. I spent two and a half years investigating it because I had questions that were unanswered and wasn't sure, and you know, and so I decided I wanted to find out for myself. And I looked, and I basically covered all of the objections and the evidence. I'm convinced that there is a pre-advent investigative judgment in heaven that is going on right now, and it is a part of God's solution to the great controversy. We haven't had a chance to talk about that this week, but the investigative judgment is a crucial part of God's solution to the problem of the great controversy. So if you want to know more about the great controversy, that's another element of it that you'll find in this book. Now, today we're going to talk about the Battle of Armageddon. We're going to begin with the time of trouble, and we're going to talk about the intensity of the time of trouble. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. The greatest time of distress in world history. Whoa. I suppose maybe... The flood of Noah would be a time of even greater distress, but uh, no, you know, the time of trouble will end with a great earthquake that will shatter the world. So in that sense, it will be exactly like the flood of Noah. It will be earth-shattering. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. This period after the close of probation will be Satan's final effort to conquer God's people. But we will have Michael's protection. And as we've discussed earlier this week, Michael is another biblical name for Christ. We'll have Christ's protection. Now, here's a text about the close of probation. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This passage is from the sixth trumpet 
And from a historical perspective, how is how Adventists interpret the, the seals and the trumpets, we interpret them as, as history, historical. This uh, sixth trumpet comes right down at the end of time, and the, the close of probation is indicated by the fact that the people refuse to repent. They're in rebellion. God has done everything he can to win them over, and they refuse. They refuse to repent of their sins. These people refuse to repent. Their probation has closed. Now, here's an important question. When will probation close? Now, most Christians, if you ask the average Christian, when will the opportunity to accept Jesus and be saved close, they would tell you at Christ's second coming. That's what most Christians would say. Adventists believe that probation will close before Christ's second coming. The question is this, is there biblical evidence for this? And you know, for a long time, as I was going up, growing up, going through uh, school, uh, college, seminary, university, I wondered where in the, you know, is this just an Ellen White teaching or can it be found in the Bible? And for a long time, I wondered about that and it felt like Ellen, it's basically based on Ellen White, not the Bible. And so finally I decided to investigate it carefully and I read Revelation carefully and I found it. You will find the close of probation in Revelation chapter 15. Paul begins chapter, I mean, John begins chapter 15 with verse 1, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. Now notice in this passage the seven last plagues have not yet been poured out because the seven angels have emerged from God's temple but they haven't been poured out. There will come a little later a command from God to pour out the seven last plagues but they haven't happened but that hasn't happened yet. Paul says then continuing in verse 5, After this I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. The heavenly sanctuary is opened. Here's a question. Was there ever a time when the Old Testament temple was opened? Anybody know when that was? At Christ's death. Right? And so, do you know what it meant when the temple, the veil in the temple was torn in two? Do you know what that meant? It meant that the Old Testament sacrifices had come to an end. The whole sacrificial system had come to an end. And uh, so, when probation is closed, the sacrifice for Christ will come to an end. For those who have not repented, it will continue to apply to us. But those who have not repented, uh, the sacrifice of Christ will have come to an end. The sanctuary, the, the temple of God in heaven is opened. No more mediation. That's one of the evidences for the close of probation be, uh, before the second coming of Christ. The other one is, out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven last plagues. They still haven't been poured out. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and his power. Now notice the temple was, number one, was filled with smoke and number two, from the glory of God. Now, no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So now, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of, number two, from the glory of God. Number three, no one could enter the temple. Now go with me back to 1 Kings and let's read a passage from the dedication of Solomon's temple. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Notice, the same three elements as in Revelation 15. The temple is filled with a cloud. Revelation says smoke, but it's basically the same thing. And in the dedication of Solomon's temple, the glory of God was there in the temple. And the priests could not perform their service. Revelation says no one could enter the temple. In other words, uh, in Revelation, when it says no one could enter the temple, that would include Jesus. 
No one could enter the temple until the seven last plagues were over with. And we know that Jesus will, be, will not be our mediator during the seven last plagues. Probation is closed. There will be no mediator in the heavenly sanctuary during the entire time of trouble, and that's standard Adventist theology. Then the very next thing, be, uh, the previous verse, uh, well, I won't go like that. The previous verse about no one being able to enter the temple, the smoke filling the temple and so forth, um, that's the last verse in chapter 15. Then the very next verse in chapter 16, 1, Then I heard a loud voice in the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. God will not pour out the seven last plagues, his, which is his horrible worst form of his expression of his wrath in world history until probation is closed. <clears throat> a number of years ago, I had a secretary at Pacific Press. She had a question. She came to me one day with a question. She said, Pastor, what's the purpose of the time of trouble after the close of probation? What, why? Probation is closed. Why doesn't Jesus just come? Here's my answer. The purpose of the close of probation, this is what I told her, to demonstrate to the universe that the wicked are irredeemably unrepentant and lost. Notice the response of the wicked to the fourth plague. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. Demonstrating that, you know, trouble usually causes us, when God, God often brings trouble because he knows that that will cause us to turn to him. But here's this terrible trouble and the people refuse to repent. They curse God. There's another reason for the plagues. To demonstrate to the universe that God's people are totally committed to him and will never choose to rebel against him again. Satan's effort to destroy God's people during the time of trouble. This will be Satan's last stand on planet Earth. When Jesus comes, Earth's history is over with. So Satan knows that this is his last stand his last opportunity to try to destroy people and notice his reason for trying to destroy them. As Satan influenced Esau to march against Jacob, so will he stir up the wicked to destroy God's people in the time of trouble. He numbers the world as his subjects, but the little company who keep the commandments of God are resisting his supremacy. You see, Satan is still trying to win the great controversy. If he could blot them from the earth, his triumph would be complete. Somehow Satan has the deluded idea that if he could destroy God's people completely, totally, then he would win the battle in the great controversy. Come on, Satan. But anyway, one of the things I notice about Satan is two things. Number one, he's very persistent. He loses, hey, he just picks up and starts over again. He loses the next one, he keeps going. I have to admire that in Satan. <laughs> but... The whole time he's so deluded. You'd think he'd understand, but he doesn't. It's the same with lots of us. Until we're born again and the Holy Spirit changes our thinking. We've talked about that. Satan is under the delusion that if he could get God's people to surrender their loyalty to him, he could win the battle in the great controversy. Stupid. So Satan will try to destroy God's people. Here's what Ellen White says. As the protection of human laws shall be withdrawn from those who honor the law of God, there will be in different lands a simultaneous movement for their destruction. At, as the time appointed in the decree draws near, the people will conspire to root out the hated sect. So Satan is getting the, human, the, the wicked human people to fulfill his objective of destroying God's people. It will be determined to strike in one night a decisive blow which shall utterly silence the voice of dissent and reproof. And then another statement, a decree will finally be issued against those who hallow the Sabbath of the fourth commandment, denouncing them as deserving of the severest punishment 
and giving the people liberty after a certain time to put them to death. Now, we will have God's protection during that time. Here is a story from the Old Testament of God's protection of his people during the time of trouble. It's Elijah and his servant when the armies of Syria surrounded them at Dothan. How many of you remember that story? Okay, let's read it. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, the Syrian army with horses and chariots surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. He was terrified. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O oh Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, <clears throat> and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. God will protect his people during the time of trouble, basically in the same way. Could men see with heavenly vision, they would behold companies of angels that excel in strength, stationed about those who have kept the word of Christ's patience. Though a general decree has been fixed, has, though a general decree has fixed the time when commandment keepers may be put to death, their enemies will in some cases anticipate the decree and before the time specified will endeavor to take their lives, but none can pass the mighty guardian stationed about every faithful soul. Some are assailed in their flight from the cities and villages, but the swords raised against them break and fall powerless as a straw. Others are defended by angels in the form of men of war. So brothers and sisters, any of you that are privileged to go through the time of trouble, don't be afraid of the decree to destroy you. Angels will be there to protect you. Now, let's talk about another issue, end time perfection. There are those who say that after the close of probation, we have to be sinless, absolutely perfect. Well, um, must God's people achieve a state of sinlessness before the close of probation? Here are two Ellen White quotes often used in support of this idea. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reduced, reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. When the character of Christ has been perfectly reproduced in his people. Then another one. Now while our great high priest is making the atonement for us, we should seek to become perfect in Christ. Notice that we should seek to become perfect in Christ. Not even by a thought could our Savior be brought to yield to the power of temptation. Satan finds in human hearts some point where he can gain a foothold. Some sinful desires cherished by means of which his temptations assert their power. But Christ declared of himself, The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Satan could find nothing in the Son of God that would enable him to gain the victory. He had kept his Father's commandments and there was no sin in him that Satan could use to his advantage. Now notice this. This is the condition in which those must be found who shall stand in the time of trouble. That's pretty plain, isn't it? My response, 1 John 1, 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So my response is this. Maybe... God really will expect us to be sinless after the close of probation. That's possible. I don't know. Um, but I'll tell you this, brothers and sisters. Well, Ellen White said, Now while our great high priest is making the atonement for us, we should seek to become perfect in Christ. Uh, I don't know whether God intends us to be absolutely perfect after the close of probation, but I know this. I will never be able to claim that perfection, perfection until after Jesus comes. And another statement that I don't, not to hear, don't have to share with you, Ellen White says, only after Christ's coming can we claim to be sinless. And here's the problem. Oh, Ellen White says, Christ's character stands in place of your character and you are accepted before God just as you, if you had not sinned. This is uh, from Steps to Christ. 
Let me back up here. Now, while our great high priest is making the atonement for us, we should seek to become perfect in Christ. That's in the statement in the great controversy I just read to you about perfection, how we must be perfect. Well, notice that we should become, seek to become perfect in Christ. Notice this. Christ's character, this is some steps to Christ, page 62. Christ's character stands in place of your character and you are accepted before God just as if you had not sinned. So even though we are sinful, when we accept Jesus and his righteousness covers us, God accepts us as if we had not sinned. He accepts us as perfect. Well, notice what Ellen White said here. Uh, now while our great high priest is making atonement for us, we should seek to become perfect in Christ. And then read this definition of perfection. We're perfect in Christ when we're covered with his righteousness. I think that will apply after the close of probation as much as before. We will be sinless after the close of probation, at least in the sense that we will be covered with Christ's righteousness. And God will view us as absolutely perfect. My response is, if God sees that we need to be absolutely perfect after the close of probation, he'll get us there. But to make that the focus... Well, here it is, my response. If God wants you to be sinlessly perfect, he will get you there. But to make this a goal to be reached is spiritually unhealthy. Why? Because it keeps your focus on yourself. You're constantly asking yourself, am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I good enough? That is very unhealthy, a very unhealthy way to, to be a Christian. What we should be doing is saying, Jesus, I don't know whether you want me to be absolutely perfect after the close of probation, but I know this. I'm going to continue today and tomorrow and the next day to work on my character and become uh, as much like Jesus as I can and leave it up to you to decide when I'm ready and whether I'm ready. And then forget about being perfect, sinlessly perfect after the close of probation. That's God's problem to work out in you, not your problem to work out in yourself. Now let's talk about the Battle of Armageddon. It's very interesting. Most Adventists and most Christians have some confused ideas about the close of probation, as you will see. Let's look at the sixth plague in Revelation 16. It does not describe the Battle of Armageddon. It describes the preparation for the Battle of Armageddon. Notice, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. To prepare the way... Armageddon hasn't happened yet. Now, who are these kings from the east? If you go back to the story of Babylon, you remember the Persians came from the east to Babylon to destroy it. And you know the story how Babylon fell on the night of this great feast and the handwriting on the wall. And, the, and uh, you probably know the story. The, the Persians diverted the river Euphrates enough that the soldiers could get under the wall. The people had gone into the, the uh, feast in such a hurry that they failed to close the gates and the armies of, of the Persians entered the banquet hall and killed the king and took over Babylon. You remember that story? I think most of you have heard it before. So when Revelation uh, says that the angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and his water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east, the kings of the east are the angels and Jesus Christ and God the Father coming to save their people. Then uh, John says, I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs that came out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Notice, again, the battle of Armageddon has not yet happened. This is preparation for the battle of Armageddon. These demons are gathering God's uh, Satan's forces for the battle. This is still preparation for the battle. Finally, in verse 17, they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The battle has not happened. This is still preparation for the battle of Armageddon. So when will the battle of Armageddon happen? Most people, including most Adventists, have traditionally thought that the battle of Armageddon was some battle on this earth between the forces of good and evil or somehow, you know, 
Early in our uh, Adventist history, Uriah Smith interpreted the Battle of Armageddon as the forces of east against the west. How many of you are familiar with that? The actual battle of Armageddon comes in Revelation 19. I saw heaven opened, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who is this rider on the white horse? Tell me. Jesus Christ. His name is the Word of God. He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It is Jesus Christ. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, notice the armies of heaven, the angels, are following this rider on the horse, Jesus. Let's go back to Revelation 12, 9. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. Michael, Jesus was the leader, the general of the armies of heaven that cast Satan out of heaven in the beginning. It's the same army returns to fight the battle of Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon is the second coming of Christ. How many of you had already thought of that idea? A few. I hadn't thought of it until fairly recently as I was writing this book on Armageddon. When I went to the Bible commentary, SDA commentary, I found out that's exactly what the SDA commentary says. The battle of Armageddon is the second coming of Christ. Plain and simple. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. This is continuing with uh, the armies of heaven riding out on their white horses with Jesus as their leader. And now it says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and his armies. In Revelation 16, we saw the evil spirits gathering the kings of the earth to the place in Hebrew called Armageddon. Now they are actually in combat. But who are these... Uh, who are these kings that are gathered to battle against Christ? Here's my proposal. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and his armies. I believe that as Satan will, understand, will be very aware that Jesus is about to come and he's going to do everything he can to stop him. Now that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But remember that Satan... It's always ridiculous in his expectations. In our world, what I'm telling you would not have been possible 50, 75, certainly 100 years ago. It would never have occurred to anybody. But in our world, we have atomic bombs and we have missiles to deliver them. Now, in our world, science fiction talks a lot about aliens from other parts other planets in the universe. You know that. So the idea of an alien invasion of our Earth is nothing new in today's science fiction. Satan will be very aware that there are aliens coming from another part of the universe to our planet. These aliens are Jesus Christ and the armies of heaven. I propose to you this is somewhat speculation, but I think reading what it says here, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and his armies. In today's world, I think that gathering the forces of evil for the battle of Armageddon in Revelation 16 means that these various different nations of the world that have been trying to, preparing to fight each other, when Satan tells them there is an alien force coming from outside another part of the universe, they're going to be gathered together with all of their missiles and all of their atomic bombs to try to stop this alien invasion, destroy Jesus Christ on his, as he comes down to this earth. Now, Satan ought to know that Jesus is, is powerful enough to neutralize those bombs. Or even if he lets them go off, they're no more than a firecracker. 
to Jesus. So that, I think, I take this passage very literally that the kings of the earth and their armies will be gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and his armies. There will actually be an effort on the part of the kings of the earth to destroy Jesus before, as he comes. This wouldn't have been possible to even think about until our modern weapons were developed. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet the two of them were thrown alive into the lake of burning sulfur. At this point, out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Remember Jesus said on the cross, It is finished. I think twice in Revelation you read this. It is done. And it's always in the context of end time. The very end of time. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The phase of the great controversy in earth's history is over. Jesus will destroy this plan. All the wicked will be destroyed. God's people will return to heaven and the, faith, the great controversy in earth's history will be over. God's people are on their way to heaven. The wicked are dead on planet earth. Here's Ellen White's description of Christ's second coming. The mountains shake like a reed in the wind, and ragged rocks are scattered on every side. There is a roar as of a coming tempest. The sea is lashed into fury. There is heard the shriek of a hurricane like the voice of demons upon a mission of destruction. The whole earth heaves and swells like the waves of the sea. Its surface is breaking up. Its very foundations seem to be giving way. Mountain chains are sinking. Inhabited islands disappear. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus comes, he is going to shake our planet, literally. And can you imagine the great buildings in New York City and Dubai over in the Middle East and Tokyo and Singapore and Berlin? All these great cities are going to be shattered. The buildings, those great skyscrapers, will tumble to the ground. The freeways that we've built, the highways we've built, and their bridges will collapse. The earth will be a literal wreck. Now then some people, most evangelical Christians believe that God's people will spend the millennium on planet earth. Many of them believe that we will be side by side with the wicked during that time. That's horrible. Jesus made it clear, very clear in the parable of the sheep and the goats that God will separate his people from the wicked at the second coming. Right? We will not have to live among the wicked anymore. Furthermore, I propose to you that God would never require that God's people live on this wreck of a planet after the close of probation, I mean after his second coming, and have to rebuild this wreck of a planet. He isn't going to require that of us. He's going to take us to a perfect land. Jesus said... I'm going back to heaven to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back and take you to be with me. That where I am, where is he? Heaven. There you may be also. Pretty plain to me that after the second coming of Christ, we'll be in heaven, not on this wreck of a planet having to repair it. I can't imagine God requiring us after his second coming to, to repair this whole planet. And God isn't going to do it until after the millennium when he recreates the earth. Above the terrific roar of thunder, voices mysterious and awful declare the doom of the wicked. Those who a little before were so reckless, so boastful and defiant, so exultant in their cruelty to God's commandment-keeping people are now overwhelmed with consternation and shuddering in fear. Demons acknowledge the deity of Christ and tremble before his power, while men are supplicating for mercy and groveling in abject terror. That's continuing Ellen White's description of Christ's second coming and the reaction of the wicked. Now let's talk about the end of the millennium. First, the wicked are raised to life. When the thousand years are over, John says in Revelation 20, 
Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to prepare to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. In my book I divide the battle of Armageddon into two parts. I'm not doing that here but I'll tell you about it. Part one is the battle of Armageddon at Christ's second coming. Part two is the battle of Armageddon after the thousand years. And it says that after the thousand years are over, the wicked will be raised to life, and Gog and Magog, they'll gather them for battle. The number, in number, they are like the sand on the seashore. Notice what happens next. Now Satan prepares for a last mighty struggle for the supremacy. How long will this preparation take? Well, Ellen White says that during the millennium, the prince of evil was miserable and dejected, but as the wicked dead are raised and he sees the vast multitude upon his side, his hopes revive. And he determines not to yield a great controversy. He represents himself to his deluded subject as their redeemer, and he works wonders to support his claims. And he proposes to lead them against the camp of the saints and to take possession of the city of God. Satan is so stupid. He still thinks he can defeat God. <laughs> and he looks at all the, all the wicked that have been raised alive and he thinks, oh, we can do it. Come on, folks, let's get busy and do it. Now, how are they going to do that? Satan consults with his angels and then with the world's kings and conquerors and mighty men. They look upon the strengths and numbers on their side and declare that the city is small in comparison with theirs, and it will be. Most of the human population will not be saved. So yeah, Satan will have a huge mighty army on his side. Satan, the, the, the wicked declares the city is small in comparison with theirs and that it can be overcome. They lay their plans to take possession of the riches and glory of the new Jerusalem. All immediately begin to prepare for battle. Skillful artisans construct implements of war. Military leaders famed for their success marshal the throngs of warlike men into companies and divisions. Interesting. Our typical understanding of the end of the millennium is the wicked will be raised to life. They will immediately rush upon the holy city and the lake of fire will destroy them. You know, you wake up one day, God raises you one day, and by the next day, everybody's advancing on the, new, on the new Jerusalem to try to destroy it. That, for a long time, was my perception of the end of the millennium. Please note, skillful artisans construct implements of war. Military leaders marshal the throngs of warlike men into companies and divisions. In other words, folks, at the end of the millennium, when the wicked are raised to life, they will not immediately the next day go out and try to take the holy city. They're going to build, military, they're going to build implements of war. Well, back in Ellen White's time, that would have been some nice guns, you know, and cannons and stuff. Back in the uh, time John wrote this, this would have been bows and arrows and spears. Today, we know that the implements of war that they're going to build is going to be atomic bombs. And tanks. You know, Alexander the Great will probably be among those people that are raised, those army generals that are consulted. These ancient army generals are going to be absolutely amazed at the technology for war that is available. And they'll say, yeah, with all those atomic bombs, all we have to do is drop a few of them on the New Jerusalem and it'll be over with. We'll win the war. Man, we can do it, folks. We can do it. And Satan's going to say, folks, we can do it. Questions. How long will this take? Well, I've already talked about that. Now, here's another question. Where will the wicked live during this time when they're, when they're preparing for the final battle how will they get their food what about factories to build their war machines remember the world has been destroyed how are they going to do this 
I can only think of two possibilities. Well, I'll mention a third. Hello? Can you hear me? Okay. Have we lost the sound? Okay. It seemed to me we had. One possibility would be, of course, for God's people to come down here during the millennium and rebuild the world. Uh, that's not going to happen. I can assure you that will not happen. So the, uh, there are only two other possibilities. God would, re, re, would prepare the homes and the hospitals and the businesses and the highways and the freeways that will be needed in order for the wicked to build all these implements of war. I'll tell you, it may take several years for the wicked to prepare themselves. It may take 10, 15, 20 years. I don't know, 50? I don't know. We're not told that. But if they're going to prepare for battle and the way Ellen White describes, it's going to take a long time. More than a decade or two, I think. So, when God raises these people, they're going to have to have food to eat, they're going to have to have places to live, and if they're going to build these implements of war, they're going to have to have a way to do it. Where will all this come from? The Bible doesn't say, Ellen White doesn't say, I'm going to give you a suggestion. My idea, take it for what it's worth. During the millennium, Satan and his angels will rebuild the earth. True? I don't know. All I know is that Ellen White's description of the preparation that has to be made for the final battle raises some interesting questions, doesn't it? Okay, finally they're ready. The wicked are ready. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. At last the order to advance is given and the countless host moves on. An army such as was never summoned on earthly, by earthly conquerors, Satan, the mightiest of warriors, leads the van. Kings and warriors are in his train, and the multitudes follow in vast companies, each under its appointed leader. So this is a very well-organized military organization. With military precision, the serried ranks advance over the earth's broken and uneven surface to the city of God. By command of Jesus, the gates of the New Jerusalem are closed, and the armies of Satan surround the city and make ready for the onset. And now the great white throne judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from the pre their, his presence and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Now Christ again appears to his enemies, far above the city upon a foundation of burnished gold is a throne, high and lifted up. Upon this throne sits the Son of God, the power and majesty of Christ no language can describe, no pen portray. As soon as the books of record are opened and the eye of Jesus looks upon the wicked, they are conscious of every sin which they have committed. All appear as if written on letters of fire. Before we go into the lake of fire... I want to reflect a moment. This is the end of the great controversy. Now notice, and this is getting into the investigative judgment. The angels in heaven, right now, prior to Christ's second coming, are reviewing the records to determine who will be saved and lost. Now, let me clarify the angels in heaven, God already knows who's going to be saved and lost. He already knows that. He knew that when, when God's people were upon the earth before they died. At the time they died, he knew whether they'd be saved or lost. Why are the angels reviewing the records? Because God is a God of fairness. He wants his created intelligences to understand his purposes. He wants them to understand the difference between his law and the laws of Satan. 
And he has allowed the great controversy to go, along, go on so that the inhabitants of the universe, both angels and humans, created beings, can understand why he works as he does. So that nobody needs to be afraid of God. And so God opens the record books of heaven and he says, come and take a look. Here are the decisions I've made about each individual human being. Now you go look and see if you agree with my decisions. You and I will not be able to, I mean the angels in heaven will not veto, they'll not have veto power over God's decisions, but they will have the ability to review those decisions, investigate the lives of God's people, and there's no question when the investigative judgment is over, every human being whom God has said deserves eternal life, the angels will say, praise the Lord, they do. Because we've looked at the records and we can see they deserve eternal life. And they will also recognize those that God has decided don't deserve eternal life when, when, it, when their investigation is over, they'll say, God, you're right. These people do not deserve eternal life. Now, there's an important reason why God wants the angels to understand this. It's an important reason why he wants to know who deserves to come into the, into the New Jerusalem, into, into heaven, and, and join with the angels in their association. The angels cast Satan out of heaven several millenniums ago because they could see enough at the... T I mean, it must have been horrible. I, I, I'm looking forward when I get to heaven, to reviewing the record of sin in heaven before the, Satan was cast out of heaven. And I think we'll discover that it was, it was terrible. By the time it was over with, the, the loyal angel said, we just cannot stand this anymore. We've got to throw Satan and his angels out of heaven. It's just getting too disruptive in our society. And those angels do not want sin to enter heaven again. And so God is, one of the reasons why God will let them look at the books of record during the investigative judgment before the second coming is so that the angels can say everyone whom, Jesus, whom God and Jesus have decided deserves eternal life and to come into our society, they deserve it and we're happy to welcome them. You know, when we enter the pearly gates at Christ's second coming, there will be a welcoming committee of angels saying, we are so happy to see you here. What a, brave, what a privilege it is to have you guys come into our society. Welcome. Do you want to be a part of, the, of those who are welcomed into the city of God? Amen. Then during the millennium, you and I will have the same opportunity to review the records of heaven. Why? We're there. Why do we need to review the records? Because there will be somebody who says, you know, why isn't my father here? Why isn't my brother here? They were loyal church members the whole time that I knew of. Uh, leadership positions in the church, you know, and preaching sermons. Why aren't they here? And they'll review the records and say, oh, is that what it was? I didn't know that about my father. I didn't know that about my brother or my sister. Wow. Yeah. I'm glad they're not here. I'll weep over it, but I'm glad they're not here. On the other hand, what do you think Stephen is going to say? How's he going to feel the first time he meets Paul in heaven? What on earth is that guy doing here? And Jesus will take him and open him up some of the, some of the beautiful writings of the Apostle Paul. And Stephen will say, Oh my goodness! And then Jesus will say, It's because of you that he is here. He was so profoundly impressed by your response to the stoning, to his stoning. You didn't get angry. You asked God to forgive them. 
And that was made such a profound impression upon Saul that when I confronted him on the road to Damascus, he immediately gave his heart to you, to me, and look at the service he's performed. And uh, Stephen will say, God, I want to meet that man. It will be profoundly emotional to Stephen to realize I had an influence in that man's conversion and look at the marvelous contribution he made to Christianity for the next 2,000 years. So, in heaven, you and I will get to look at the books of record and understand why some people are here that we hadn't expected and why others that we hadn't expected to be, had expected to be here aren't here. Then, at the close of the millennium, the books of record will be opened. That's what it says in Revelation. And the wicked themselves will get to read the books of record and understand why they are not there. In other words, before it's over with, every human being on planet Earth will have had an opportunity to review the records and understand God's purposes and understand the whole business of the great controversy. And then God will be ready to bring it to a close. Now we're ready to talk about the lake of fire. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Um, and the wicked and the God's people will say, yes, it's time to end this great controversy. Destroy every vestige of sin. Every sinner. Ellen White says, some are destroyed in a moment while others suffer many days. All are punished according to their deeds. The sins of the righteous having been transferred to Satan, he is made to suffer not only for his own rebellion, but for all the sins which he has caused God's people to commit. His punishment is to be far greater than that of those whom he has deceived. After all have perished, who fell by his deceptions, he is still to live and suffer on. Now, Here's a very difficult question. Why would God, a God of love, torture Satan in the lake of fire for days on end? Has that occur, question ever occurred to you? How many have wondered that? Raise your hand. I have a man in my Sabbath school class at, in Caldwell, Idaho, who has voiced that question on numerous occasions. And he says... I don't know. I don't have an answer. I don't think there is a satisfactory answer this side of heaven. It's a question I have. It's a question many people here have. Why would Satan, why would God torture Satan for several days? Why not just let him die? Boom, it's gone. I don't have a completely satisfactory answer. But God will do this in the presence of the loyal angels and the redeemed. Both groups have had a chance to review heaven's record books. The angels during the pre-advent investigated judgment, God's people during the millennium. The whole purpose of the great controversy has been to give intelligent beings an opportunity to understand God's love and justice. God won't destroy the wicked until we can understand why. So when it happens, you and I will understand. So if you have questions about why God would torture Satan for several days after uh, in the lake of fire, just don't trouble yourself with that question because you, we don't have the answer on this earth. It does seem to us very horrible. But when we've had a chance to look at the books of record, we will understand why. And as we stand there on the walls of the New Jerusalem looking out at the burning of the world around us and we see Satan being tortured, instead of saying, why? We'll say, praise God. 
That sounds strange to me right now, and it probably sounds strange to you, but that's the way it'll be. We will praise God. The new earth. In keeping with his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Here's an interesting comment that God made to Job during his... You remember that Job suffered with this horrible plague that Satan cast on him. And most of the book of Job is interaction between Job and his friends, quote, unquote, friends. And his, Job is maintaining his righteousness and his friends are maintaining that he's a sinner and getting God's punishment. Well, when God finally speaks to Job, he says to him, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Now, what does that mean? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? What God is saying is, where were you when I created this world? That's what God is asking Job. Job, that is Job, where were you when I created the world? And then the very next sentence, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Where were you when I created the world? When the, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who are these sons of God? Angels. What God is telling Job is that the angels watched the creation of this world. And they sang for joy at the creation of the world. They were so excited. We're going to get to meet all these new human beings. We're going to get to relate to them. We're going to have wonderful times together with all these human beings. Can you imagine how disappointed the angels were when Adam and Eve sinned? Brothers and sisters, these sons of God were angels... They watched God create the world the first time, and they praised him. You and I will watch God create the world the second time. Amen. What a marvelous privilege. We didn't get to watch it the first time because we weren't created until it was all done. But we'll get to watch the creation of the world the second time, and we will praise God. The dwelling of God will be with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. Can you say amen? amen. Praise the Lord. Ellen White's famous quote in the final paragraph of her book, The Great Controversy, and I'm sure that everyone here is familiar with this. Let's read it. The Great Controversy is ended. What we've been talking about all week is finally over with. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness throughout the realms of illimitable space. From the minutest atom to the greatest world, all things, animate and inanimate, in their unshattered beauty and perfect joy, declare that God is love. Praise the Lord. Father in heaven, I pray that everyone here in my presence this morning will be able to stand on the walls of the New Jerusalem and watch as you recreate this world and praise you throughout eternity. I pray that everyone here will live the Christian life, let you transform him and her on the inside. So that when Jesus comes, we can go home with him and live with him throughout eternity in a world where there will be no more sin, no more sickness, no more death, no more crying or pain. We look forward to that, Father. And thank you for the plan of salvation. Thank you for the great controversy that you allowed to go on so that every intelligent being could see and understand your love and your purposes. May we each join together in that great crowd of the redeemed around your throne someday. In Jesus' name, amen.